Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Cancer is one of the most common chronic diseases in the world. Chances are you'll encounter someone in your clinical practice who is having cancer treatment or who has finished a course of treatment. So what are the common musculoskeletal concerns that you need to watch out for? How do you help someone manage cancer-related fatigue or get back to exercise after their treatment? Is it safe for someone with bone metastases to exercise? Kendra Zadravec and Dr. Kristen Campbell join us today from the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia in Canada to share their research and clinical expertise and help us find answers to those questions and more. Do make sure you check out the show notes for today's episode because we've compiled a long list of websites, guidelines and research articles to help you explore more about the role for the musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinician in supporting people who have cancer. Dr. Kristen Campbell, Kendra Zadravec, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. And today is a nod to the very broad scope of musculoskeletal rehabilitation practice that everyone who's listening is in the world of. We're talking about cancer and cancer treatment and how it might impact on the musculoskeletal system and more specifically how physical therapy or physiotherapy, musculoskeletal rehab more broadly can help. Kendra, let's start by talking more broadly, more generally about physical activity. And I think we all know, we all understand the benefits of staying active for our physical and mental health, but what are the specific reasons or the benefits of physical activity for someone having treatment for cancer or perhaps after they've finished their course of treatment? Basic reasons are very similar to the general population. So improved health and improved quality of life. But there are specific attributes of cancer and its treatment that physical activity can really help with, like fatigue, physical function, anxiety and depression and lymphedema. But the big ones are really fatigue, quality of life and more the mental health side of things. The cancer related fatigue is something that's really, really common with chemotherapy and with radiation. And I think people underestimate, especially for radiation, how much fatigue comes with that just with daily treatments. And it really starts to accumulate. Like we learned with every other chronic condition like cardiovascular disease, et cetera, that rest really wasn't that helpful and people got really deconditioned. And so then it really was hard to get going again. And so I think the evidence is really clear as Kendra summarized that actually adding activity in really helps to manage that fatigue. And I think it helps people really feel a lot better with the mental health elements. People are really concerned. They think cancer treatment, it's quite rigorous, which it is. 150 minutes per week. It seems like too much. Like where we came to with those recommendations is first and foremost, moving more benefits nearly everyone. And so just get moving whatever works for you, five minute walks, a couple of times a day, like whatever you can do, then start trying to build up to try and help with symptom management. Looking at the evidence about 90 minutes, so three times a week, about 30 minutes of aerobic activity, Plus or minus strength training, there's a lot of nuance in there with the guidelines, which we can get into if we want, but that started to help with symptom management. And then that 150 minutes per week, obviously beneficial for improving overall health. 
Now, Kendra, let's talk about after treatment, because I think some of the folks listening to us today might might think, well, that I haven't heard anything in here specifically about musculoskeletal health, so I'm unlikely to see someone in my regular outpatient clinic. What are some of the reasons why someone might present to a, an outpatient clinic with an issue that physical therapy, physiotherapy, musculoskeletal rehabilitation could help? Kind of depends on the treatment. So after surgery, you have the typical post-op concerns. So after breast cancer, people will get a lot of scarring and tightness around their axilla or, um, or chest region. You also see that with head and neck cancer as well. They'll get a lot of upper extremity issues. And then if people have some sort of procedure to remove the tumor, they might have some scarring associated with that. So just helping people in that post-op stage. And then people also typically experience joint pain and muscle pain with chemo. That's one of the side effects. And then any scarring and fibrosis with radiation as well. Each treatment has associated MSK impacts that I think physio can really help with. The one thing that sticks in my mind from my physio training is breast cancer and lymphedema and trying to, to help manage swelling. So let's talk a bit more broadly about that. Let's let's talk about the shoulder and the head and neck. What are the sorts of treatments or the, the typical places you might go to to think about helping people manage shoulder stiffness, shoulder pain? Yeah. So initially it would just be like really basic range of motion to get people back to their typical mobility. And then for breast cancer in particular, we generally recommend people start resistance training around one month after surgery. And there's a lot of evidence that actually shows resistance training is very safe for people that are at risk of lymphedema or who actually have lymphedema, as long as it's individualized and supervised and progressive, getting people moving and helping them realize that it's okay to move again, because a lot of people will have this idea of what surgery is going to be like and what the impacts are going to be like. But until they're actually in that moment, it's really hard for them to kind of like reconcile what they thought it was going to be like with what it's actually going to be like. Yeah. Which is that whole idea of body and mind and not separating the two. So Kristen, you alluded to resistance training and nuances. Let's go there. How do you approach prescribing a resistance training program for someone either during or after treatment for cancer? You know, just to reinforce what Kendra said too, you know, I think scapula really is a thing that gets impacted on both head and neck cancer and breast cancer for different reasons. For head and neck cancer, there's actually some surgery that can impact the nerve distribution and to some of those areas. And with breast cancer, all the surgery is typically done on sort of the front and people get really kyphotic. They're just sort of holding that area like, I don't really want to move it. Really kind of getting those scapula moving again and getting people that sensation really is a great place to start. And I think people might get overwhelmed with someone coming to see like, this person has cancer, breast cancer, what am I supposed to do? It is really your normal shoulder assessment. Like that's where you start. It puts the underlying issue here and there's surgical things and there's the scarring from potentially fibrosis from radiation. Like it's, there's, I don't want people to get overwhelmed by that piece. You just start with your normal shoulder assessment. In terms of resistance training, I think the big key with that, as Kendra alluded to, it is safe, but it has to be individualized because there was a lot of concern for many years that resistance training increased your risk of lymphedema. And there was it was just out in the world and you couldn't lift more than five pounds after you had had your breast cancer surgery in perpetuity because there was not a great understanding of what caused lymphedema. So there was a lot of concern and it's very hard to manage. So people were very concerned about it themselves. And I think what the research actually did was really nicely do very progressive standardized approach to adding people res resistance on. So starting people really low, ensuring proper form 
and then progressing people really easily over time, literally like one, two pound increments, which, you know, depending on what you have access to and also monitoring for arm symptoms. And so things like tingling, heaviness in the arm are kind of early signs, maybe that lymphedema may be developing and that maybe you should be going to see the PT who's specialized in lymphedema to get that kind of addressed. And then they can kind of come back to the regular resistance training program. Even people that had quite a few lymph nodes removed, they weren't at a higher risk of developing lymphedema or having more issues with lymphedema after the 12 months of resistance training. That leads us nicely into, it's more than simply giving someone an exercise program and saying, okay, you go off and do it and you'll, you'll do well. What else goes around these sorts of exercise programs around, you know, educating people for symptoms or what they should be looking out for or how to, how to dose and how to progress their own programs? Something that I really thought of during my placements and some of the research studies is like what's driving people's experience with A, MSK pain and B, like how they're associating with their body after treatment. And I think physios are really positioned in a nice place to be objective about like these different drivers of people's experiences, whether it's like biological, psychological, or social, and kind of help tailor people's exercise programs, given those factors, as well as their goals, and just being able to support people through their cancer journey and um, provide support. So it's not only the exercise program, but it's how it's delivered and how we support people during this period. As a clinician, how regularly would you expect to see someone face-to-face or via telehealth? And then how often would you catch up with them into the future? It really depends on where they are in the treatment journey. We'll start at the beginning. So you have a diagnosis, we use breast cancer as the example. Typically, people go through the workup period. It takes about four weeks or so to make a decision about you know what kind of surgery people might need or whether they need to see an oncologist before that to decide when chemotherapy would be given. So that takes about four weeks. And then typically, if someone had surgery as their first treatment, it usually takes about four weeks. They give some post-op recovery time before someone might start something like chemotherapy. Then chemotherapy lasts three, four, five, six months. You know, now we're at seven months, eight months of a cancer time period. And then radiation typically is given after chemotherapy in a traditional sense. It's every day, five days a week for four weeks. So that's another month. And so we're talking about, it's really a 12-month kind of journey with pretty standard chemotherapy for breast cancer and and many other cancers are very similar. So I think it'd be when you see someone. I think as Kendra's alluded to, that post-operative time period, getting people moving, managing MSK concerns, that's something where you would see them maybe a couple of times a week or over a three or four week period to just get things like on track, be moving, doing well. We do a lot of research on programming exercise during chemotherapy, mostly because we know that people's physical function really decreases. There's a lot of chemotherapy side effects like fatigue, but also it really impacts any fast growing cells. So your red, white blood cells, all these things. I mean, everything that you use for improving your physiology with exercise is being challenged. And so how do we give people a prescription that at least helps to maintain physical function or decreases that that common decrease that we see? Typically, we've won, run very standard exercise prescriptions like two to three times per week, aerobic activity, and we've done it supervised. We've done virtual group-based classes, which people really like. So, you know, we've done that during the duration of chemotherapy to keep people moving. What I'll mention there is the group element has been really key, I think, in designing exercise prescriptions for this group. The social support they get from others going through the same experience can't over, overstate how important that is. 
they have well-meaning friends and family that are doing everything they can to support. But, you know, to go through that journey, I think is is really something that, you know, you need to share with someone that really um, has walked the walk with you. The other thing we've done is really after can- uh, cancer treatments are finished, like kind of getting people back going. And that would be a very similar, like maybe you just do a little bit of counseling a couple of times a week. Like, here's what we know is safe. Here's like some ideas, do do some goal setting with someone. And you might need to just see them a couple of times just to show them like, this is safe. We know this is beneficial. Like, what questions do you have? How do we get you going and answer the, the concerns you have? Or, you know, a whole standard, you know, six to eight weeks of aerobic training just to get some jump started back for return to work or something. So it really varies what the goal is and kind of what that person needs. And Kendra, as someone who's earlier on in their clinical career, you're blending PhD research and clinical training. So you're our perfect test audience here. What are the resources that you really love to use? What are your go-to resources when you're thinking about putting an exercise program together and then helping someone through that? Yeah, I think like Kristen talked about, it really depends on the client's goals and their previous experience with exercise and physical activity. In Canada, the Physiotherapy Association, they have an oncology division, and that's a really great network for researchers and clinicians who specialize in this area because we don't get a ton of training in oncology in school. So a lot of the training comes after we graduate and we just build experience as we practice. But yeah, just finding a network of like-minded clinicians and researchers is really helpful. We'll put some links in the show notes for people as well to get a, a flavor of these different resources and some ideas of where to, to go to get started with some help and welcome others sharing resources that they really love to use on our social media channels as well. Now, Kristen, I think one of the scary things, well, certainly it seems scary to me as a physio, is dealing with bony metastases and balancing the benefits of exercise with the risks of bony mets and fractures. So let's talk about bony metastases and exercise. What are the the typical risks? How concerned should I feel about them? And how do I start to manage some of those risks and and get the benefits and the rewards of exercise without some of the the potential downsides? I think bone metastases are an area where it is challenging as a PT. Um, From, you know, talking to people with uh, bone metastases, the two different ends of the spectrum are one, someone that's been active their whole life. They love to ski and play tennis and golf and all the rotational and impact stuff that makes you think, I am concerned as a physiotherapist. But they're like, this is what I like to do. And, uh, you know, how can I continue doing that? And I think we are in a good place as physical therapists or physiotherapists to help support that. The other end of the spectrum is someone's been told they have bone metastases. Their exercise background could be anything from lots to nothing. And then they are, don't know what to do. Like they are terrified to move at all. Being active or being able to do even the activities of daily living that you want to do has a huge impact on people's ability to stay independent and feel like they're not going to be a burden to the, their family members and all the things that they recognize are really important and they want good quality of life. Bone metastases, I think that is part of advanced cancer. And I think Previously, advanced cancer was sort of, we're talking, moving into the palliative space. But now, some people live for years with bone metastases. And so I think that's really pushed us as a profession to understand, well, how do we meet these people's needs if they're going to be living for five or 10 years? They want to keep active. And it's really important to stay active. What we tried to do in 2019 is bring together a group of experts from around the world to tackle this question because 
There's not a lot of research evidence to guide this. In general, the things we saw that people with bone metastases could participate in exercise. Um, they were interested in enrolling in randomized trials for people with advanced cancer, and they attended, you know, 80% attendance rate at all the trials where they enrolled. There were very few serious adverse events, and I think that's what we're concerned about. We don't want people to have bone fractures under our watch. So whether that's spinal cord compression issues around vertebral collapse, humerus, and femur, these are the things we're worried about. In the trials that had enrolled people who had bone metastases to exercise intervention, there were only four serious adverse events reported across more than, I think, 900 people. And all of them are related to a, a soccer intervention in Europe. And they were not related to the site of where people had bone metastases. So it was all the same MSK. There was, uh, I think there was Achilles and there was ankle fractures and all those sort of things. No one had bone metastases in those spots. And so I think that was helpful to understand that even people with appropriate screening, which we'll talk about, could participate and that they didn't see any serious adverse events related to the fraction, uh, bone metastases itself. And then it showed that people improved their physical function and quality of life and all the things. So it showed efficacy. So the biggest thing I think that came away from looking at that literature was one, all of those trials had some element of supervised activity. And that was supervised by a university-educated either kinesiologist or physiotherapist. And so I think that was the takeaway we had, that some instruction on how to move was an important piece of it. The other piece was that people were screened a variety of different ways around their bone metastases to see if they could be eligible. So things like bone metastases that had pain associated with them were things that definitely were a flag that some trials did not enroll anyone that had a painful bone metastases site. The other thing is that sometimes it was medical clearance. And so that is, I think, the trickiest part for working as a physiotherapist in this space. Most of us work outside of the cancer setting. And so getting information about the bone metastases is challenging other than self-report. And so one of the main recommendations there was how do we improve the communication between the people who are experts in the cancer treatment, so the physicians, the oncologists, the nurse practitioners, the healthcare team that has that information at the cancer center, the exercise professional, physiotherapist, uh, kinesiologist, working in the community, and the patient. We are working on a tool that hopefully can get the key information that a physical therapist ideally would need that we can't get from our own history. We can get a lot of information from our own history taking, but where are the gaps that will help us feel more confident in understanding how we might start prescribing exercise? So that's an ongoing effort. Kendra, what advice would you give to someone who's had cancer treatment and who has bony metastases about staying physically active? How do you speak with someone that you, you're working with in real life clinical practice? Normalizing physical activity and movement is a big thing and helping them realize that it is okay to move despite having bone metastases and working with them to come up with ways that are safe to move depending on where they're sites of bone metastases are because we don't want to avoid activity, as Kristen said, but we also want to ensure that people are safe. We don't really know exactly what will break a bone. People have fractures, unfortunately. You know, if you think of the places where bone metastases typically go, different cancers have different patterns, but it is things like ribs. It is things like head of the femur, head of the humerus. And so people fracture turning over in bed. People fracture tripping over a, a curb. 
some of the early work, which was really nice in Australia, they're like, okay, we need better guidance. They came up with a bit of a, a schema that said, if you have a bone metastasis in your thoracic vertebrae, then avoid X, Y, Z. Or if it's here, don't do this. And the challenge is, and they recognize sitting up in and out of a chair has a lot of hip flexion, for example. You know, all the things that, you know, we're, we're grappling with, trying to avoid movements that might impact the area or load the area where metastases are, but the spine and, you know, your proximal humerus and femur, like these are things that you use every day for everything. And so I think there's needs to be more research and understanding like what fracture tolerances are and what's more likely to cause things to fracture with activity. We do not know that. What we do know is that exercise is beneficial. People can move safely if we, you know, give them good guidance and monitor symptoms. Just you got to check in with people. If you give them a new movement, for example, someone's like, hey, that all of a sudden is I am feeling more pain or all of a sudden I am feeling like some tingling numbness after adding a squat or whatever. That's important information. And you say, great, okay, we're not going to do that or we're going to do it in a different way. Typically, people with bone metastases may be on pain medication. And you have to ask them about that because those are the things you'll see. People love exercise. They want to come to the class. And they're like, oh, I start taking more of my medication so I can make sure I come to the class. You're going to have to have that conversation with them to understand what exactly is going on. Is this more symptomatic in a way that you're concerned about? Physiotherapists are the ones who can dig into this try to understand what's happening. How do we best approach this and be willing to titrate and change things around as you go? As someone who's not a specialist in oncology, who's very much as would call herself a specialist in sports, this is a field that seems scary. And I think the whole idea is that you've got to feel comfortable and get into the area. And that's what we're trying to do with episodes like this, talking with people who are experts in the field like you, is to give people the avenues into understanding more and reducing that anxiety level so that you can have those honest conversations when someone walks into your door in the clinic and talks about wanting to exercise, or you can open up that conversation about exercising because the reality is that cancer is very common and it's likely that you're going to have someone who walks through the clinic in a general musculoskeletal practice and is having treatment or has had treatment for cancer. So I think it's all on all of us as clinicians to make sure that we know the resources to go to. It doesn't mean all this information has to live at the front of your mind all of the time, but knowing those places to go to. So I'm really grateful to both of you for sharing your knowledge with us all today and giving us some of those resources. Kendra, as we wrap up, what are the top two messages that you'd like to share with people today? What are the things that you really hope people take away with them when they're next in the clinic? The importance of keeping moving during and after cancer treatment. There's so much good evidence that it's beneficial for overall health and quality of life and mental health. So making sure that patients are really set up to successfully be active during that time. And I think just Uh, locating resources in your area or country of practice for oncology to help inform your practice. Kristen, we'll give the last word to you. The key thing is that time and time again, we hear from people who have gone through the cancer experience that they don't know what's safe and they want to work with someone who understands cancer. Having these resources and just having some knowledge about cancer, I think, is really important. And I think you can meet the needs of your clients right now. They have they're very people have very little access to service. So I think you acknowledging that, yes, you have some understanding of cancer, you're willing to learn more through working with them, I think will be really key. 
And this is a really rewarding group to work with. There's a huge potential here. We hold so much knowledge that I think can benefit people with cancer diagnoses. And it's just the basic stuff that typically is just not part of the current cancer care setting. You'd be surprised at what really you already are ready to offer to this group. Just a little bit extra awareness will really serve you well to just really meet the needs of a group that's really underserved and we can have huge benefit for. I think that's a great place for us to finish. Kendra Zadravec, Kristen Campbell, thanks so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.